Are you interested in leadership? Welcome to the Menzies Leadership Podcast. Tune in for insights and observations about leadership, the challenges and blind spots, attributes and values that you need to lead now and in the future. I'm Liz Gillies, Menzies Foundation CEO and your host today. Let's get started. Gives me so much pleasure to welcome Barul and Susie to the Menzies Leadership Forum. Uh, the foundation's been working with AIM or collaborating with AIM for a couple of years now and uh, the foundation, we're always so challenged, I'd say, um, stretched. Uh, it's sort of a mind-bending experience working with AIM, can I put it that way, in every respect. But um, there is so much alignment, I think, in terms of our ambition in the world and the way we think in the world. So perhaps we might start by, um, can I ask Parul and then Susie to introduce yourselves and then we'll sort of get stuck into it. Parul. Hey everyone, it's lovely to meet you all. And yeah, it's awesome to hang with you again, Lizzie. I really enjoy our connections. And I think one of the greatest joys of our collaboration is for you to say, I don't get it. Like this is no, it will only work in the AIM context. It can't work in the wider world. And then we go on a journey together and you're like, actually I get it now, you know? Like, and that for me is the joy of us working together is the same with me. I have moments of like, no, no, that's never going to work. And then you sort of do it and you unpack. But okay, me, I am part of PJ for short. I don't know how the introduction goes, but I've lived around the world. I was born in India. I'm indigenous to the center, the Gondi people right in the middle of India. Dad probably comes from the north. It's Pakistan now. And I've had the fortune of being in multiple countries, in multiple industries, from consulting to policy to even making movies and living like a monk for a few months and then finding and falling in love with AIM, which has transformed my life, but also the lives of so many people around us. And this is what I get to do now. I get to lead our US foundation and I have a lot of fun working with Susie and a bunch of other amazing leaders. So Susie. Oh, and Susie, let me just say, I have to say, you have very esteemed roles as CEO, co-CEO of AIM. So um, tell us a little bit about Susie yourself and how long you've been, you know, how long you've occupied that role for. Well, thanks, Lizzie, and thank you, PJ. Um, my name is Susie. I'm 23. I'm a proud Wiradjuri woman from the central west of New South Wales, but currently reside on Gadigal Country in Sydney, and I have done for the last five and a half years. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, um, a co-CEO of AIM this year, which is a really surreal title for a 23-year-old, I'm aware. Um, yeah, I guess sort of I came to AIM last year through an internship and worked in the HR team for a little while, uh, which was amazing, and then pitched to stay while I was still finishing off my degree and then worked casually all of the last year and then moved into a full-time role this year in a leadership position, which is amazing for me and all the things I get to learn. Um, and yeah, I've, I've been in the role since the start of the year this year, 2023. Um, yeah, so it's a little bit about me. I'm looking forward to exploring that in more detail. So uh, a lot of the audience and certainly from myself, you know, I've had a sort of connection with AIM over a long time and AIM originally, I think, you know, was known for the amazing work, um, that AIM did particularly with, you know, around mentoring and supporting, um, you know, traditionally more marginalised communities to have success at school and then move into universities. But it's sort of the model sort of blew up for all. 
And I, you know, I have spent quite a long time trying to work out the words to sort of summarize where you are and what you're doing now. But I, I think what I'd love, I just want to have a little chat about that in terms of how we start. I love the fact that AIM positions itself, itself now as a lab to solve the challenges of our time. Um, I love the fact that you are taking a deep systems perspective on this. And I just wonder, I'll ask you first, Pearl, and then Susie, talk to me about this lab and the approach you're using to solve the challenges of our time and how you think about how you can be instrumental in those spaces. So we're not just a lab, we're an imagination lab, Lizzie. Sorry, and- Pearl. But the idea of being an imagination lab, and it's been a journey for us to come upon imagination as the key central force that unifies our work across the 52 and growing countries that we're now a part of. Because people often, especially in the Australian context, where perhaps most of the listeners of this podcast will be, would remember AIM as being Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience. So Australia is still critical Indigenous is the heartbeat of everything we do. Mentoring is still our bread and butter and our nerve and everything else. And we create experiences that uplift humanity to remember who they are. And when we say remember who they are, we mean how we are meant to be in relationship with each other and the world around us. Because we think the two big problems facing our planet today, and there's multiple, but like just zooming out way, way out and like trying to simplify the complex ecosystem is one, the way we've stopped relating with each other. And that leads to inequity, inequality, however you frame that conversation. And the other is how we're relating to nature. We're essentially a part of nature. We are one with nature, but we've forgotten. And a lot of indigenous systems and knowledges around the world know that at the end of the day, humans are another species. We're just another animal, as Chels from Indigenous Knowledge Systems Labs likes to say. And for us to remind humanity that we're integral to this ecosystem, not removed from it, and we're integral to each other's health and well-being, it's almost like cutting one limb and pretending that your whole body is going to be fine. It's not, you know? We're affecting ourselves when we affect other people and the ecosystem around us. And we chanced upon this perhaps after doing on-the-ground work in yeah lots of communities initially around Australia until we went global in 2016, 2017. And now with the expanded global footprint, we're finding the same challenges that the more you remove humanity from rightful relationships, the more problems it creates. And our job is to fix that basic relational pattern that humans hold with each other and the world around us. So I think that's the work that I'm trying to do. And Peru, one of the lenses that you knew that you use is this indigenous way of seeing and thinking as an anchor that builds connectivity in that relational context. I'd love to, I'd love to hear you just talk a little about the power of that as a lens in which to see the work. Yeah, I think that's the fundamental lens. Tyson does a really good job. So Tyson's one of the Tyson Young Kapota from the Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab at Deakin University. He's one of our core designers. And Tyson does a really good job of explaining how so far, and I've got a lens on it. I think you've listened to one of my conversations recently, but the lens that Tyson positions is like, imagine all of the written Western worldview, which is currently the dominant narrative. Imagine that can be summed up in your left hand 
like with palm closed, as all the knowledge written on books, just kind of the predominant transmission mechanism for that knowledge. And imagine like indigenous knowledge is predominantly being like open splayed palm as your right hand. And historically, we've looked at indigenous systems through the Western worldview, and all you get to see is the fingertips because your closed hand blocks the splayed palm behind you. And you see the dances, you see the ceremony, you see the artwork, you see the whatever. And that's what is celebrated as indigenous culture. But really, indigenous peoples around the world, First Nations peoples around the world, have a lens that can connect us back to who we are fundamentally. We are a custodial species in nature in relation to all other species. We've forgotten that. We can somehow offset the work we're doing in one part of the world, killing coal ecosystems and environments because we're disconnected from that ecosystem and environment. So what Tyson invites us to do in the book Sand Talk, which is an amazing book, and which has informed some of our lenses and has been part of AIM's work from its origin in 2005, is to flip the framework and look at the Western worldview through an indigenous systems knowledge lens. And you still see the whole written worldview. You still see the whole ecosystem underneath. But the world you look at it, it's through relations. It's through being in relation with others. And I think that is why we are doing all the things we're doing now. And that is the lens we use to look at the world. And I will also, in this same moment, Lizzie, before we go to see yeah. yeah. say that I'm sitting in a little gray cubicle in a tall building in Manhattan. And although it might seem so distant and so remote from the knowledge that is already encoded in this landscape, this is still the land of the Lenape people. This is still custodial territory, places that people have held sacred relations for thousands of years. And although the people have been displaced, the relations live on. The land holds the knowledge and our job as AIM or as Indigenous Non-Systems or as different groups is to decode that knowledge or unearth that knowledge literally that lies behind these layers of concrete. So Susie, that's a, you know, a fundamentally different perspective. Um, that's challenging, I think, for a lot of people. Um, so often in an Australian context, you know, conversations about Indigenous ways of thinking talk about deficit and disadvantage. How does that lens that lies at the heart of your work as, you know, a CEO in AIM, how does that change the dynamic in terms of the work that you do with AIM? Yeah, well, I think it's super hard to follow for you, Jay, because <laughs> you said something so well and just have it so perfectly. So um, I think I'm very privileged in my position um, as a young Indigenous person to join an organisation founded by a bunch of young men and the whole ecosystem of AIM being founded on and based on Indigenous systems thinking and knowledge. Um, it's harder to speak on a broader context about um, these conversations or these contexts for Indigenous people um, but like for me and like how it's informed my role and my experiences, it, it's 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 very special. I think it's very valuable, um, and that I'm so grateful to be part of this network, um, sort of working towards shifting these systems um, and bringing to light indigenous knowledges. Because I guess in this context, we really have sixty-five thousand plus years of knowledges deep rooted in these lands and people and 
like it would make sense, right, to tap into those knowledges versus the ones that have been around for 250 or the systems that are at play that do um, that do tend to lead to some disadvantage for Aboriginal people but for other marginalised type people as well in this context. So for me in my role, I just feel very privileged and, and lucky to have a place of where I can belong and be in community and with all the people across the world we work with in relation, um, it sort of it doesn't matter whether they're also Indigenous or not, so any lens, but AIM encourages um, this relational network based on these Indigenous knowledges and it's very connecting and it's and it doesn't like I've been very privileged to talk to a lot of people around the world and been connected with people here, but you know, kids in so many different contexts all over the world. And I think it's just very special and really hope to see there's a big shift in in other orgs and in the system in general. So, Susie, so often the re- the relationships in the areas in which we all work tend to be more transactional. Relational implies a much deeper sense of connection, a different level of trust, the, you know, finding a shared purpose almost. Can you just give us a little bit of a sort of tangible example of how that, how you do that in your work that you do with A? Like how do you, rather than you and I meeting and, you know, organising, deciding we'll do something, tell me a little bit about how this relational work plays out in terms of your work and the things that you do, you know, in terms of every day in your role at AMS? Yeah, well, I think um, actually I had a very recent conversation on a different podcast project that we're doing um, where this other young Indigenous woman was talking about how adults, like, build relationships with each other based on alignment of, like, goals or workplace or um, and that we don't actually, like, sometimes it's not so authentic. Um, But I think, anyway, like... I was thinking of that as you were asking. Um, I think with our relational network and moving through the world in a relational way, it's being mindful um, that there is so much deeper other than the surface. And when we connect with people, we connect um, with the intention of getting to know things and learn things and leading with knowledge rather than pretending to know, embracing when you don't know things. Um, and, you know, really like in the workplace, we've had a lot of, opportunity to learn this year and to listen to podcasts and to meet people and just be in conversation without you know sometimes the requirement of an outcome is just being connected to another human being or to the land and um I guess I don't know yeah day to day we do lots of different things and um practice this relational network in a lot of different ways and in our I guess headquarters at the imagination factory like money is not a not a um a thing that we sort of do internally like we, there's no transaction inside the imagination factory and we've been able to practice when we have kids come to the factory that um our hoodies like then they don't get to buy a hoodie um they get to exchange a kindness pledge um and that that hoodie becomes a bit like of a um of a traveling ambassador or um, embassy of kindness and the kids get to um, pitch and think about kindness and other people and it becomes a much deeper sort of, with lack of better word, transaction, I guess. They get to um, get a hoodie for a kindness pledge and um, not money and it takes away this like monetary barrier and um, just provides opportunity. Yeah, day to day, it's very different. Like it's, we have lots of different things that we do. 
So, Pro, I so love this idea of you, this sort of roaming global ambassador living large in the world. Um, explain to me how you're reframing this ambition about addressing, you know, very significant systemic challenges based on this sort of relational context of bringing different groups together to surface new ways of thinking and working. How's that playing out in your world? Across, did you say, did you say 52 countries, Pearl? It's just mind-blowing. Mind-boggling even for us. Liz. Yes. Let me say, it's a really hard act to follow Susie. Because <laughs> <laughs> Susie is so hard. They <laughs> just did another podcast. Go, Susie. I know, go, Susie. I agree. Yep. Susie's rocking in, but... And our co-CEO model is actually a perfect example of how young people are ready to lead and we're actually preventing them from leading. And our thing, our main, I don't know if it's assumption or you call a theory of change, depending on the context you put it in, but our underlying belief is that young people, especially young people who have been historically marginalized, who haven't been as much impacted by the systems. They have been impacted, but they've been pushed outside the system, let's just say. And that gives them a unique worldview back into the mainframe. It's almost like when humans left on the Apollo mission and looked back on Earth, they could look back and be like, oh, this is a finite planet. We can't keep wrecking it and still think everything's going to be good and rosy. You know, So that removed perspective, although you're not separate from the system, it's important to... Like the scientist's objective view, I don't believe in entirely, and Tyson sort of argues against it as well. If you want to know what happens to the Schrodinger's cat in the box, you've got to get in the box yourself. You know, you've got to be part of the ecosystem to understand how it all plays out. But then for a moment, that removed perspective gives you a look back into the world. So, yeah, my life is very colorful in the way it allows me to travel and experience different countries and cultures and. I don't still visit 52 countries. That would be ridiculous because there's only 52 weeks and then I'd be a migratory. I wouldn't even be a migratory bird. I don't know how humans would do it. So I get to spend three months in New York, give or take, or three months in America, mostly in New York. And then I go on a journey because New York is quite intense. It's the most beautiful city I know of, but it's still intense in terms of a city. And then I like to go to India and connect back with my family and my spirituality and the roots of where I grew up. And then I have a moment in Australia and I try to break up my journey along the way and stay in places of cultural, spiritual importance to me. On the way to Australia, I stay in Indonesia. On the way back from Australia to New York, I try to stay in Hawaii. And so that sort of gives me a very global perspective on what's going on in the world in the first place. And I think that is critical. If we really want to solve the, the problem at scale, systemically, you've got to take the maximum zoomed out lens, you know, go all the way out. And one of the things we like to do is try to solve for the most marginal use case, or the most marginal, there's fertile ground on the margins. If you can go to the edge of the experience or the edge of the network, you're, you're definitely going to find something amazing that you didn't know before. And there's going to be an aha moment there. And like we have fun moments when we run the Menzies Emerging Leaders program together and I'm like, 10, 10 is such a boring number, let's go with 11. And even that little play sort of gives a lift, you know, gives joy, gives 
momentum and energy to the work we're doing. We're like, no, no, we've got to find the most diverse group of 11. We've got to go to the edge of experience and collectively we'll be able to make sense of the problem because none of us hold all the pieces of the puzzle, even as some people believe they do. Even if people in positions of power especially tend to think they know everything. For us, the greatest knowledge, and I think lots of philosophers and indigenous systems thinkers would say the same thing, the greatest wisdom is saying, I don't know. Those three words are really powerful and a mechanism that allows for learning, you know? So, Paul, what type of relational networks are you trying to foster? True, yeah. Who are you bringing into the room to work at the margins but make it a, have some structure in terms of how you're actually thinking about working in the system? Brilliant. Brilliant question, Lizzie, and I didn't get into the relational patterns that we're weaving, so this is useful. But at the heart of the relational network we're building, so we've done lots of work over 20 years and we have a death strategy, which we can maybe talk about another time in this conversation. 10 years from now, give or take, it's just under 10 years. So we have an endpoint, which is an interesting proposition to work with in the first place. But that sort of frees us from the idea of like this particular network we're building. In October this year, we launch our digital network, which puts a dome over all the work we've done in the 52 countries and growing in the whole physical network. It puts a relational digital network on top of it, and it's completely built on indigenous knowledge systems thinking. We've invested a fair bit of money, time, relations, energy to bring that network to life, but that copies everything we've known from our work on the ground. It is fractally built. All you get is five deep connections. You don't get a million followers, you know? It's our response to the at-scale social networks of the world. And we're calling it a relational network. It's not social media, it's relational media. And for us, the five core groups that we're investing our energy in, at the heart of it, the first one are the young people from outside the margins. And we want a million of them as the presidents of this new network, this new, what we call our digital nation imagination that we're building. And these are the presidents of imagination. Young people, a million of them from outside the margins, they will form the heartbeat. Around them, we have four other groups in operation. The second group is leaders from school contexts, school, school principals or teachers who have a direct influence on this young pe person's life and are maybe one of the first ecosystem partners in that role of the young person. The next leader we have in play is a university leader. And not all young people will choose to go down that same trajectory, but give or take. They are one of the more established structures of knowledge holding in our modern day society. And so we give them access to them in the first place. The third or the fourth person and the third structure within this young person's ecosystem would be potentially a workplace. So then the fourth group within this network is organizational leaders, CEOs and board directors and whoever. And then the last is just citizens, civil society more broadly that we all operate within. And so these are the five key player and a young person, say a young Aboriginal person in Australia would be connected to a university leader in India, connected to a school leader in some part of Nigeria, connected to an executive in Paris and a citizen in New York pending time zones, pending availability. But for us, that's the most beautiful 
unlikely connection of five that can regenerate and create movement. And if you put all these fractals of five together and you insuance these part of your hands, you get a beautiful regenerative relational network of energy movement. And each of them are leading their own change projects. You know, they're looking at a systemic problem and they're supporting each other as they're called almost like board of directors, let's say. But Susie, do you have a magic fire in your role as CEO? Who are your, I mean, are you, I love, you know, in the Menzies Emerging Leaders Program, the wonderful working thing about working with Parole is he always makes me smile from my middle, inside. He makes me smile endlessly. We were sitting around and, you know, probably Parole, to be honest, our work is always relational. I, I always strongly feel, but we're sitting around with a really disparate group of people and talking about the 10 emerging leaders we're going to foster each year. And Parole goes, we can't have 10, we've got to have 11. We all said, why? And he said, because it's magic. And do you know what, Parole? been magic ever since the magic 11 makes me smile externally internally and there's something profound about i don't know it's sitting in the unknown and trusting each other in ways that challenge you it just takes you it was a perfect illustration of what you're talking about but Susie, i'm really interested in your five tell me how the five works for you yeah um well there's actually five co-ceos in the brain um which is my core UNC times five, which I'm feeling very lucky about. This year, there's actually five women co-CEOs for the first time. Um, and we're from different sort of corners of the world, which has been very special. And they're all older than me too. I'm the youngest. So I get to look up to all four of them and learn something different from each of them every day, really. Um, we have Saru in Zimbabwe and she is just such a powerhouse and it does so much phenomenal work on the ground there um and Serena in Paris and she's like the next one in age to me so we're we have much more of a sort of a funner relationship I think in some ways we relate um on different things like sending funny videos to each other and then we all get to look up to people like Jacqueline and Candace who Jacqueline's in New York and Candace is in Cape Town in South Africa, um, who have a little bit more, um, I guess, worldly career experience and a lot of experiences they can draw on um, that can help guide us and inform us in different ways. And the relationship is magical because we all sort of get to mentor and learn from each other. And, you know, there's lots I can learn from Candace and Jackie, but there's lots they can learn from me too. And that's the sort of um, magic in having bringing a young person straight out of university into an executive role um, and putting me in the boardroom and putting me in governance meetings and all these spaces that I've never been before um, because maybe sometimes I come forward with a different perspective and can give that insight as well. So yeah, that's my core UNC times five, but also in some of our other projects, we get put into groups of five internally within the organisation outside of leadership roles. And um, there's like kind of a couple across a couple of different spaces um, we're all fellows at the, our Imagination University this year, so we have like a check-in group of five people as well. Um, but yeah, it's kind of how we operate the whole org. Like everything is UNC times five, like five, five, five. It's the magic number. And and this idea of so it, it, in this fractal concept for all, all the fives connect in some way. It's almost like you're building a movement, but in it, but celebrating this idea of it being diffused of not it not it not being you know around understanding the process 
there being a sort of element of evolution and relational connectivity that drives the ambition you have. Explain that to me because that's a very different way, you know, that a lot of people think about working at systems change level. How does that how does that say out? What's you know, what do you hold and what's loose? What's essential in the sort of nexus of those relationships? Yeah, for us, essentially that number five, we've tested with a lot of thinkers and systemic players, and we've learned it through our work on the ground across all the communities that we've operated in, that the fractal group of five, and we tested with Robin Dunbar, who's one of 12 people that has a number named after him, for example, and the Dunbar number, although it's 150, he says five is the core group that you would, in case of an emergency, if I were to have a heart attack right now, I could think of five people off the top of my head that I would give a call to, to come rescue me or to give me some source of solace, you know? And so that, for us, works really beautifully. But in most cases, your core group of five are people that are most in relation with you or are like you, you know? And that creates a little worldview, a little bubble in your own ecosystem. And we say the more unlikely the group of five, like Susie beautifully described her coalition of five co-CEOs, you get to play with different worldviews. You know, Susie, you've told me before that, okay, I thought this is my worldview, this is how I grew up. And then I talked to Saru in Zimbabwe, who has like completely different experience of growing up and completely different and Candace, like another phenomenal lady who actually had her father killed in the apartheid era by a general of the era, General de Kock, and she somehow, like her journey unfolds and she finds a moment to forgive him and releases all the trauma. And Jacqueline, being a leader here working in America for systems change along women's sort of inequity and wage gap and wealth gap and whatnot, and Sarane in Paris, who's a gun at sort of framing complex problems and putting them in simple terms for people to engage with and work with. So it's just this beautiful co-group of five that uplift our whole ecosystem. And it's a sense of what I think the mainstream would call distributed leadership. And we consider all of ourselves as like little nodes in the network. Although uh, we just did talk about this before the podcast began. Lizzie, although my title formally is the CEO, I really dislike the title. For us, it's just a calling card to be in the right room, in the right space with the right group of people to move the agenda forward quickly. And we use traditionally flawed titles like CEO to get to work and move the system quicker. But for us, we're not the only leaders or the knowledge holders. For us, all of them. Susie is an amazing knowledge holder within our ecosystem. And our job is to sort of allow for this fractal leadership pattern to emerge. The best example we found in nature is the mycelial network that grows underneath the soil and that allows for free form communication between trees and other beings sort of in the natural world. And everything is kind of a node and our core group of five is kind of a node and they're all interrelated. So most decisions can be made at that core five person fractal level. But if there's something that affects the whole ecosystem, then the whole ecosystem can be mobilized really quickly through a fractal of five. And maybe not all five people are available in each of the fractal, you know, but if there's two or three, 
across the entire, and then you get a more distributed view of the problem and the solution. And so, and so, for all, is there this fractal network? I love the I love that idea of it under the ground and connecting in all sorts of unexpected ways. Is this about an orientation towards regeneration? Like, what's the like? What? How does that? What is? What are you positioning this network to do? What are your What are your hopes for it? Yeah, yeah, one hundred thousand percent, Lizzie. Is it's towards regeneration? It's towards accepting infinity, finitude, and then allowing for some form of infinity to emerge by accepting an end date, which is why it has an end date. It's by accepting that all systems at some point entropy, Bucky Fuller, Buckminster Fuller used to call it syntropy, where there is like a degrowth or at least falling down of a system. But then if it's done in relationship, it doesn't affect the entire, in fact, it affects the entire ecosystem, but it uplifts it. You know, when a tree dies and it becomes hollow, it sort of becomes a burrowing ground for many other beings. And then the nutrients from the tree flow down back into the soil and feed back into the ecosystem. So there is beauty in that death and that regenerative process. And for us, this fractal five allows for that movement. It allows for that quick regeneration. And if I think I know everything, this is not the place within this network, you know? You have to be vulnerable. You have to be open to learning all the time. And more often than not, you have to be open to say, I don't know. So Sidney, what does what does regeneration mean for you in that sense? How does that it how does does re, does this idea of regeneration sit at the heart of the role that you play? What does that mean to you, regeneration? Well well, yeah, when I think of regeneration, I think of in life there's death and everything between and the story and the journey to get there. Um and that both are as important and should be embraced and um I think that's really like my role, for example, is a is a twelve month um, program. Um, so it will be someone else's turn next year to bring forth their um, their knowledge, their perspective, their experience to to the new core group of UNC Times Five co CEOs. Uh, so I think in in the way that the whole org is sort of built. Like is based on this idea of regeneration and um, just the opportunities within that. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. So what, I, and so, 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 what, what, what regenerative story are you writing in your role in the twelve months as CEO? What's the you know, if you this idea of regenerating writing story? What, what's the story? Do you think that you that you're in the middle of writing? <laughs> is that a tough question, Susie? It is. That's too tough. It is. I'm not sure. I think the like all I can draw on most confidently is my experiences and all of the things that I get to learn being in this role. Um, the like the experiences that I have gotten to do so far and will get to do in the future. Um, and it's super important for myself and my community members and my family members. Um, just just. To, to have me in this role anyway, super impactful in like so many more spaces than just at work, being in a leadership role. It it means for me a lot of personal growth um, and being able to share that with a lot of people. I'm really worried to get into that. Sorry, I want to get that into a minute. I just want to, sorry, Pro, what did you want to say? I just wanted to say 
Susie, do you want to share some of the experiences you've been on this year that would like shed light on what you've been up to? Because you've had a remarkable journey. Yeah. I mean, my whole time at AIM has been remarkable. 12 months ago, or a bit like a bit more than that, um, I was actually on my first work trip, which I was ecstatic about. I grew up in the Central West and it was the first flight was Rex flight to Dubbo. And I was so excited. I was like, this is crazy. Me going on a work trip? No way. Um, and I went with Brendo and Will and Rosa and we went out to Dubbo and we got to meet a lot of kids and recruit ambassadors for our online imagination university. And, um, you know, that whole process of recruitment um, was in person on a couple of trips. And like, I went to Melbourne for the first time last year and Adelaide and just all these places I'd never been before. Not like travel's never really been a thing for me or that I've seen within my family. Um, and, you know, fast forward 12 months, um, I get a phone call from Jack. Are you ready to go to LA? And I was like, when <laughs> like what this is crazy it was like a Thursday night and he was like we leave on Monday and I was like wow okay like cool let me like get as much of my stuff together that I can like let's do this um which was an incredible experience it was my first time overseas um no one really in my family even has a passport so um to have a passport in my name and then to be able to use it for for a purpose that I'm so passionate about was incredible and I've been in a lot of spaces now that I keep mentioning that I'm learning a lot and sometimes I don't always have anything to say or contribute in the moment but it is a lot of learning and reflecting for me um and the trip was to meet a lot of really cool cats and just people in a network um towards our sort of our roadmap to 100 mil so and, and, then, and tell me Susie how's that made you feel about you and who you are and what you want to be I mean the magic of this vibe is so evident in what you're describing how's that changed you the umc five well your five these experiences jack ring you and saying get a passport we're off to la yeah just this idea of being opened up in terms of what's possible and being put in situations where you know it might feel overwhelming but just this like just tell me what it's meant to you as you know in terms of how you see yourself and your future in the world? Yeah, it's a really light, easy question. No, I feel um, I feel it is overwhelming, but I feel very grateful um, and privileged to be in this position um, and have to check in with myself to know that, you know, I've worked hard to get to this point and that I'm being recognised and it's very affirming for me for Jack to offer me this role at the end of last year that I must be doing something right and that, and that I feel valued in ways that I haven't felt before and... Jack and the Orbit aim like put me in these positions that are sometimes overwhelming or um just brand new these new spaces that could like induce anxiety or these but like with no doubt in their mind that I'm capable and that I'm in these spaces because I deserve to be and that I'm valuable in those spaces so it's definitely I feel very valued and privileged and for me as a person, I've grown a lot working with AIM. Um, experiences that I have had trouble is huge. Like I, Now it's like a possibility in my mind, whereas before it was never, I didn't even have a goal of traveling because it just, I'd never saw it, didn't think it was ever going to be achieved. I was too focused on my own local context. And now these experiences going overseas and getting to see just some different contexts or chatting to people from all over the world 
has been just huge for my personal growth. There's lots I could say and talk about about this. But Susie, the last time we had a conversation, I was so struck by also the amazing impact that had not just on you, but the five people that you love the most around you. You know, you talked about then it just is, I, I just think it's this idea of this sort of fractal networked effect where building this sort of capability amplifies in so many ways. I don't know if you want to share some of that, Susie, but even the conversation about how you see your future, you know, what you might want to study next or um, some of you, I think you told me something about some of your brothers and sisters who've gone on to do things because of your exposure to different ways of being in the world. Is there anything that you I just think it's this idea of this the tension between, as I said, holding it tight and loose, this sort of the unknown of what can happen from building these sorts of connections and this deep relational work is very profound. You know, I think evidence, not just by Susie, the way you think about yourself in the world, but also the impact you're having on the people around you. Mm. Yeah, definitely. The, just my whole journey into adulthood and the things that I've chosen to do and I really sort of just trust times from the universe and like trust my gut to make the decisions that are right in the moment. And like, I really feel like all the years of sort of hard work and just different adversities kind of like brought me to this moment now where like I feel very rewarded for a lot of just hard work and just stuff that's gone on. Um, But I guess our last conversation was, I think like you're remembering is that I'm the first in my family to go to university and I have eight siblings and I'm right in the middle of that. And um, I, my mum started going to university um, and just completed a year at, um, of the university now. So um, I think this opportunity or being in this role and like the people that it just affects directly, I think I'm, I'm yeah, it's a role model in, in my family and in my friends and like people, like I think when one person in the community is, um, sort of achieving things or, you know, I don't know, what like it's it's more than just me. Like it's like it's, it affects a lot of people and like my any of my success that I may come across as successful, like the community as well around me. Um yeah, so I think yeah, there's lots to be said, but yeah, I think for but me, it's, it's such a I mean it's such a wonderful illustration for all of what we're talking about. For all, can you choose your five? Who are the five people that you're working with in your work context at the moment? that are giving you that amplification, that stretch, that are challenging you? Yeah, you sometimes can choose your five depending on the context and sometimes you can't, you know. And we go, like I said, to the edges of our network, to the edges of our experience. So currently the work I'm leading sort of cuts across using nature as the primary intelligence source for organizations and systems to be designed upon. And for that, I have a couple of mentors in that realm that sort of stretch me and push me there. The other one is mentoring and mentor class and how might we proliferate mentoring as a concept because it's ancient knowledge and wisdom that the only way we've transmitted knowledge from one generation to another there's lots of things wrong in the Western society and worldview, but one of the most fundamentally wrong thing that you see is how devalued young people are and old people are, you know, because they're not primary drivers of economic value, so to speak, within this economically valuable system. And then you sort of put everyone else to the edges. Young people, no, you don't have the wisdom yet. Older people, you, you're past your prime. See you later. We'll put you in a nursing home. In most ancient cultures, that is in the case. Young people's wisdom and vision and imagination 
is necessary to regenerate society as a whole and all people's wisdom and knowledge and acquired intelligence is necessary to bring us back to uh, a shared understanding of where the world could grow. So all of those like frameworks and intelligent perspectives are filtered in through AIM. So for us, like the things I'm working on are nature, mentors, and just like leadership more broadly. So I have a core group of five. It's almost like my personal board of directors that push me and challenge me and question. One of them is a publisher in London, New York, and Sydney. Another one is one of Australia's first, in fact, she's Australia's first female board director, first female bank manager. She asked some hard questions. God bless Helen. And, you know, like I have an amazing group of five that I get to work with that support me, coach me, push me. And internally, as Susie said, I have my own groups of five based on the projects I'm leading. For Nature, we have a core group of five. For Joy, which is our version of B Corp, I've got my core group of five that sort of help uplift that system. But yeah, coming back to some of what Susie was saying, there's this sort of immense growth in allowing for discomfort. And if you want to share how you experienced our UNC times five co-CEO conversation on the stage at Humankind Festival in Sydney, Lizzie, and how it made you feel a little bit uncomfortable around ideas of like young people as leaders or there's, there's a conversation around like more recognized leaders who've had experience should be in those positions. For us, that's not the case. For us, like leadership is distributed. It includes all different perspectives. And we had a board meeting with our US board yesterday where we were all presenting and Susie was there as an integral part of the conversation. You know, all of those experiences shape her, but also shape us as the board, as the, the group. I think, I think what's interesting though is, so, you know, Western ways of thinking, there's this tension between getting things done. Do you know what I mean? And the agenda of what needs to happen and the logic that sits behind it and making sense of it. And I think the thing that I struggled with is, you know, I saw you up on stage. I mean, humankind just blew my mind, I have to say, mostly because half of it was completely mad for all, if I'm honest with you. But I came away with so much from them. Because, Susie, you know, to be honest, I saw you up on the stage with the other four people. And as you say, you know, they come from different parts of the world. It was hard to sort of see, like, you had to sort of, you had to suspend expectations that made every, about clarity in some ways, if that makes sense. You had to shift your, your way of thinking to really appreciate, Susie, the power of you sitting in that group of five with those women talking about your ambition for the world and the way that you were working together to truly appreciate, I think, the magic of what this relational element is that I think is the secret source and what AIM is trying to do. Um, and I think that that's, I think, I'd, I I think for all in terms of people's individual leadership journeys, which I want to get into in a little, in a minute with both of you, but I think some of that is actually finding areas of discomfort. Do you know what I mean? Like really thinking deeply about why you feel discomforted in certain spaces. Susie, you've talked a lot about that. You know, someone, you know, 23, Jack brings you and elevates you into this role, a lot of expectation on you, probably a lot of people thinking, oh, who's Susie at 23? You know, um, how did you, tell me the, what you went through internally about how you stepped up into that space. Like how did you deal with your feelings of vulnerability or uncertainty? in that way? Um, 
Well, I think right from the moment when he called me originally to ask me about being a co-CEO, initially I was like, me? Like, why? Like, I guess I, like, he valued me well before I valued myself in this role. Or like he, like he saw the potential there that I didn't see or that, not to say that I don't think I'm sort of worthy of this position now, but initially I was like, there are so many great people in this organisation that could be in this role. So like, why me? And at the time, like I was only into the org for one year. So there was people like much older or much more seasoned in the, in the organ. Um, yeah. Anyway. So like, I think internally, like just accepting that value is something like that you have to practice and like sort of challenge yourself to stop doubting yourself as well um, and to be brave and step into these new spaces. So there's been some internal struggle, but it's interesting here, like when you bring up the the Humankind Festival and like for how for yourself or for others who may have been sitting in the audience, they've got to challenge themselves about how or what a, a CEO or a co-CEO looks like. And we, that was part of our discussion on stage is like, you know, what a co-CEO looks like or what a co-CEO, yeah. And um, it's probably not a 23-year-old, um, you know, Indigenous kid from Central West, New South Wales, um, that's like living in the big smoke and suddenly is in this role. Um, so I think like part of why it is how it is, is is to challenge that and to encourage other organisations to not just put the kid in like the internship and make them climb the ladder, but accelerate them into these positions so that they learn a lot, like a lot, but also people get to learn from them as well. Um, but yeah, I think it's like, it's challenging and every, everyone in, in this, in, in that participates in any conversation around it or is new to the idea, um, would have to challenge some sort of traditional thinking about leadership in organizations or One of the things that I love most about AIM is this sense of joy and playfulness and whimsy that I think is the thing that builds the connectedness and the trust and the relationship. My favourite photo I have for all, other than the one of you and John Neal outside Luna Park before the day started, was I took a photo for my children so I could send it to them of me sitting in the Ferris wheel uh, with a chocolate gelati, which I probably didn't need, contemplating um, Matt Wellenberg's reconceptualization of the world as um, moving from proprietary to open source, which is just a mind-blowing concept. But the fact that I could think about that deeply on a Ferris wheel with a chocolate gelati sort of sums up AIM for me in so many ways. Um, talk to me a little bit about imagination and all of that. Uh, for all you pulled me up before, which is absolutely right to say that you're an imagination laboratory. Why is imagination, why is playfulness, why is joy so fundamental to the way that you think about unlocking the potential that you're seeking to cultivate? And that's the perfect image of AIM. Lizzie, you as the CEO of Mendicating <laughs> on a Ferris wheel, often <laughs> listening about having a chocolate gelato, <laughs> reflecting on... Yeah, why we should have proprietary versus open source <laughs> knowledge, you know? And that, for me, is like sums up AIM in a beautiful image. If I had an image, that that's a good encapsulation of the AIM spirit. And for us, why is imagination so important? It's easy for me to answer because we've contemplated this for a long, long time. And there's a history of how the word imagination filters into our worlds, and I can tell you that story, uh, like, let me answer first with the the 
rational answer and then I'll probably go to the story aspect. But the rational aspect is lots of great thinkers and systemic beings, including your Einsteins who are revered as geniuses, you know, said imagination is more important than knowledge even. Because with knowledge, you know what you already know. With imagination, we're pushing into the realm of unknown. It's exactly the conversation you and Susie were having before. By pushing like someone like Susie or anyone, me included, into positions of discomfort with a safety net around us. To grow into unknown spaces, that for us like is the essence of imagination. That for us is us pushing through new frontiers and territories and ideas and concepts that we could not even imagine. Knowledge sticks to what you know. Imagination sticks to what you do not yet know, but can potentially know. You know, so there's beauty in that. And there's lots of research why we do it through play. The scientific Western worldview research would say, with play, kids learn 20x faster. It only needs 10 repetitions compared to like 200 repetitions through rote learning or through other ways of learning. You know, if you kid put kids in a sand pit and let them learn whatever it is, mathematics or however, through doing, the learning happens so much faster. And I marvel at why our school structures, it was okay under the Prussian industrial era to have this sort of like expert up the top passing knowledge and people sort of like being bored of the man, out of their minds and some kids engaging, many kids disengaging. And it worked in a certain context. And within the educational space itself, it's remarkable when you look back upon history and say, all sectors of the change. The way we do banking has changed. The way we do telecommunications has changed. The way we do finance has changed. The way we do ed education is the same. And we're preparing the future generation. It's the most important role we have as humanity. And we're sort of stuck in 1850 or whenever the Prussian educational system began. We're stuck there and we can't move past it. So for us, imagination is a tool to move past decrepit systems that we necessarily need to move past. And it's also a tool for allowing for playful, joyful. You know it. All of us know it. When do we learn best? When we're having fun, you know? Not when we're sitting there bored out of our wits and just trying to memorize information. That's not when we learn. That's not how knowledge is passed. Knowledge is passed in relation, through ceremony, through rituals, through fun, through play, through joy, you know? And the, the perhaps the story I was going to share before was around, yeah, how imagination can actually move us to, to new levels of thinking. And as Susie was put in a position of discomfort, I, before New York, was living in Kofsava, Gumbenge country, beautiful, beautiful territory, beautiful landscape, beautiful people, beautiful community. And I was really not considering New York at all. But then for me to be put in a position where like, oh, we think you should lead the US vision. Well, all right. It was the same question Susie asked. It's like, why me? Like, I, I almost have an answer for why me. But I was like, I actually don't want to move to the city. You know, I am really happy in a natural landscape because that's where I belong in relation with other beings. But then for me, it was a natural process of embracing discomfort. It's like, ah, oh, this makes me really uncomfortable. I really don't want to do it which is why I should do it. And in AIM, and you, the conversation you and I had is like, it can work in AIM because it's safe, you know, for someone to fall. And I will challenge the whole system to say, 
It should be safe in every organization. It should be safe in every system for humans to try and fail and learn. It's okay for a kid when they're walking to fall and get up and fall. And when they're learning how to bicycle or bike to fall. Why not for adults? It's the same. We're learning something new. We will fall. And the system around us should catch us. And this is perhaps a difference between a collective society and an individual-oriented society. And I hope, I hope we get to a collective society as a whole dominant global narrative. Susie, what does imagination mean to you? You're asking all of the such easy to answer questions. <laughs> <laughs> like imagination is everything. Imagination is an opportunity. That's how I view imagination, especially in the context of schools and bringing imagination to classrooms because for the kids who fall outside the academic margins, it's an opportunity um, to be creative. It's an opportunity to think outside the box and it's just magical, I think. For all, the Menzies Foundation values so much the opportunity to work with AIM. For all the reasons I think evident in this pod, in this podcast, it it truly does feel magical in the way that AIM opens up spaces for different ways of thinking, for finding joy and a sense of optimism and hope. I think for having moments of discomfort where it's not clear what's emerging, and there's something enormously powerful about that. And just in finishing today, you know the sort of meta crises that the world's contending with, you know, um, climate, increasing polarisation, the uncertainty of AI and emerging technologies, new geopolitical risk. This notion of collective responsibility for the greater good is gathering momentum uh, in all sorts of ways. And the way that AIM is thinking about that challenge and working to cultivate this idea of the collective, I think is, you know, has is a profound contribution to challenges that sometimes seem insurmountable. Can you just finish today just talking a little bit about what you mean by a sense of the collective in terms of how we might position the work the world needs going forward and how people might connect with AIM in supporting that vision? Yeah, I can have a go and then I'd love for Susie to have a mic drop moment and drop the mic, but me, I think... Yeah, the collective is so important. This is where I finish my last little spiel is we need to move into an era of collectivism. And it's not even collectivism. Even if you're individual, if you can recognize that you're one integral part of the whole, maybe that's collectivism. Okay. So it's not individualism. You recognize that your finger can't be chopped without hurting your whole being. You know, you can't chop a tree without effectively like chopping a finger of your body because we're part of this deeply rooted ecosystem of beings. And in some cases, there's a respectful way you need to do it because we as humans, we aren't physically capable of capturing sunlight and converting it into energy. Like we don't have chlorophyll or we can't do photosynthesis or whatever. You know, there's reasons why we have to take from a plant being or an animal being but the way it's done is respectfully. It's done with gratitude. It's done with this understanding that I'm part of this ecosystem. And if I take something, I have an obligation to return. You know, there's that collective understanding built in and it's inbuilt in indigenous knowledge system. For me, what gives me hope, Lizzie, more than anything else, is that I think 
and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm naive and I would rather be naive than anything else is the era of this dominant capitalistic me versus them extract as much as possible is coming to an end. And I believe a lot of us, you know, there's one way of solving from the systemic level, the problems we're facing, the meta crisis, as you beautifully pointed out, whether it's of the knowledge we're accumulating or whether it's the climate and the relationships we're having with the natural world, or whether it's inequity and the relations we have with each other and so on and so forth. And, and thought effects of all of them. Perhaps for me, what's, what's interesting and what's beautiful and what's hopeful is I don't think we can exist in the current system. And what AIM's trying to do as a true coming back to elites mentoring organization is to model a new way of being. And when Bucky Fuller, Buckminster Fuller said something like, the only way of shifting an unjust system is not to fight against it. Because that effectively adds fuel to the fire. But to build an alternative so compelling that the old one becomes redundant. And I hope with AIM, this is what we're doing. We're building an alternative so compelling, so uplifting that the old one is no longer applicable. So Susie, in finishing, can I say, Susie, I felt so inspired by learning about your journey, seeing your bravery, Susie, during getting up on that stage at Humankind in front of all those. I mean, I just, you know, I, I um, you know, the sort of role model you are, the way that you'll see your future unfolding. Tell me as the CEO, Susie, as we finish, to the people listening, how can they help you as CEO get allow AIM to be successful in its ambition in the world? What could people do? What could people bring? How could people connect with AIM and with you, Susie, to help deliver? I think this really beautiful vision of what the future might look like. Well, Susie, don't look at me like that. <laughs> Great question. How can people help? If people could help by being kind, that's how they can help. That's how they can help. Well, I think it's a lovely way to finish. Can I just say, Pearl, I always love whenever we get together, I always learn something. I think your um, capacity to work, as I said, to have an overarching vision and to see the way things might come together. Um, your ambition for the world is just truly uplifting. And Susie, you're just such a wonderful, I think, example of what opportunities like AIM are building in the world are creating. And I just thank you both very much for your time today and just say how delighted I am that we've been able to have this conversation and what a privilege it is uh, to work with AIM in the work we're doing uh, in emerging in our Emerging Leaders program. So thanks very much. Thank you, Lizzie. It's a joy. And that was truly a mic drop moment, Susie. I want people to be kind. Thanks for having us, Lizzie. <laughs>